believe that's the first time I ever heard that arrangement. It's just beautiful. I couldn't help but thinking every time our thoughts stray toward sin or our attitudes go toward the negative or we think anything apart from what God wishes us to be thinking about, if we could only remember a song like that. Because to be a part of the new Jerusalem would be just incredible. How can we keep that vision in our minds at all times? Someone asked me if I was going to keep them enthralled this afternoon. I said, if I can keep you awake, I'll feel like I did all right. (laughs) But maybe Jeannie did the job for me and enthralled us, so uh, I'm off the hook. Well, that was my off-the-top cute answer to to the question. But I really should have been quick enough to have said, are you enthralled by the Word of God? If you're enthralled by that, that's what we're going to be addressing today is the Word of God. And that itself, if we are hungering and thirsting for spiritual things, might be enough in spite of me. But we'll do the best we can anyway. You're all quite familiar that this is the last great day of the feast, even though we get a bonus day tomorrow. Uh, Thanks to the way God does things instead of the way others do, Sabbaths can fall back to back, and we can't go anywhere. So, that's good. But here it talks in Leviticus 23, I'll just touch on it briefly, you don't need to turn back here unless you wish, but uh, verse 34, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of the seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days. On the first day shall be an holy convocation, you shall do no servile work therein. Seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the eternal. I hope that our prayers have been emotional this week. Offerings of fire. On the eighth day shall be an holy convocation to you, and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the eternal. It is a solemn assembly, and you shall do no servile work therein. These are the feasts of the eternal, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations and so on, and you are to do everything upon his days. And this day then pictures the completion, this Sabbath, of God's plan that we rehearse every year. Now, I want to go back and briefly summarize where we've been this year in terms of God's days and put it all together since it is the last time and see the progression of where we've gone. We won't rehearse this again until about six months from now when we begin all over again to rehearse the plan of God that it never, ever be far from our minds. But in the beginning of the year, we keep the Passover, which begins, really, the plan of God. Without the Passover, without Christ's sacrifice, there simply would be no plan. There would be no salvation. There would be no eternity for any man. But through the Passover, Christ offered himself for all man's sin. It is then followed by seven days of unleavened bread, beginning with a triumphant uh, night to be much observed, which shows the joy we feel for having had that sacrifice offered for us, and the beginning of our work, really. His work was the Passover. 
his work was providing something very, very important for us. And then our work really begins, pictured by the days of unleavened bread, and putting sin out of our lives. Because he died for us while we were yet sinners. He didn't die for the righteous, but for the sinner. And therefore, we all qualify for his sacrifice. And for seven days, we picture very, very diligently putting sin out of our lives. It's only a symbol, though, because we have to do it 365 and a quarter days per year. Before God changed time, they only had to do it for 360 days a year. They were five and a day, quarter days better off than we are. <laughs> we have to fight it. Well, you still had to fight it all your life, I guess. So it really doesn't matter how long each year was because they tend to add up. Uh, nonetheless, it is a constant thing. Then we come down to Pentecost. And, uh, well, I, I guess I could add there on the, on the seven days of unleavened bread the symbolism that is there, that the wave sheep is offered during that time, a handful of barley uh, representing Christ who is offered for all men. And the days of unleavened bread cycle through all seven days of unleavened bread when you begin to count toward Pentecost because Christ's sacrifice is there for all 7,000 years of God's plan for people that exist in all those 7,000 years. And then we count 50 from the time the wave sheep is offered to the time of Pentecost. 50 is the symbol of jubilee in the Bible in which all land was returned to its original families where there is a year of absolute freedom from planting crops, from harvesting crops. The land comes back and everybody just is jubilant that they get an absolutely fresh start every 50 years. It's only a symbol in that sense because God tells me I get a fresh start every morning. Where is that verse? I forget now. It just came to mind that we always have, he gives, I think that's in Lamentations, isn't it? About four? Let me go back there and look. I, because I take a great deal of uh, satisfaction and help and hope in that. No, it's chapter 3. It's talking about our strength about to perish and our hope about gone. This is talking about the church in the throes of this famine. Uh, verse 9, uh, 20, My soul has him still in remembrance and is humbled in me. This I recall to my mind, therefore have I hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. So it doesn't matter what I did yesterday, God renews me every day. I have a new, clean slate. It's like the little thing that you write on and you lift the plastic and it all goes away. The slate is clean every morning. The day begins at sunset, so we get to rest. That's the first thing you do on, the, on the, the beginning of the new day is rest. And then you wake up with a clean slate, ready to go out and tackle the day, whatever it might hold for you. That is one that I, I think of fairly often because I need it fairly often. And uh, perhaps you do too. At any rate, the whole nation got a year of jubilation every 50 years. And the Feast of Pentecost then comes, which is a feast for the first fruits. 
where God selects and chooses and begins picking the first fruits for himself. Now, there's a little bit of confusion here, I think, because then you go to trumpets, which clearly is shown to be the resurrection of the dead, the first fruits. First uh, Corinthians 15 shows us that there is an order of resurrections. First Corinthians 15 and about verse 23. Well, verse 22, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Every person who has ever lived is going to be made alive, not at Christ's return, but every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, he being the very first, he's already resurrected, he's already there. Afterward, they that are Christ at his coming. And after that, then comes the end, when he shall be delivered up the kingdom to God. And we'll see that there is more to it before that actual end occurs. But there is an order. Uh, verse 51, he's talking to his brothers here in verse 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. First Thessalonians 4, let's tie in with that. Another one you're probably quite familiar with. First Thessalonians 4, and let's go to verse 16. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Now, everyone is not dead in Christ. Many sinners are still in the ground who will not come up at that time. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the eternal in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. In other words, we will never, ever part from his presence. We will always be with him wherever he goes. That's important to remember as we get on toward the end of this sermon, that we'll never depart from him. He wants to be with his bride at all times. He does not want to be separated nor does she from he. Now, there is a little, I think, room for some questions right in here between Pentecost and trumpets. We have always assumed that Pentecost was just there to show us that we would be the first fruits and that we would be resurrected at the time symbolized by the Feast of Trumpets. But it's been going around quite a bit through the church that perhaps the resurrection of those who would be the bride of Christ would occur um, at some time prior, or that there is a time gap in there, because it talks about how he will come to the earth and his saints with him in Zechariah 14. But I think we had the picture in our mind that he was going to start coming down, and we would rise to meet him, and immediately he would come down on the earth. And I'm not sure that is quite a true picture. Uh, there are some who are saying that the first fruits will be uh, raised at Pentecost, but I've never seen anywhere in the Bible it indicates a resurrection at Pentecost. On the other hand, maybe it's the timing around the Feast of Trumpets that is more a question, because we just touched on a scripture back here in Revelation 15 that uh, Bill read to us, which 
adds a question to this thing of is Christ coming for his final uh, his his time that he comes down to the earth and we come with him at that point. Notice verse uh, 1 of chapter 15. And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues. Now the seven last plagues then have not yet occurred, right? Is that what we're reading here? For in them is filled up the wrath of God. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast, and over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, stand on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. Where is the sea of glass? Is it the throne of the Father in heaven? Now before these seven last plagues are turned loose, those who have been resurrected as the bride of Christ and gotten the victory will have been resurrected and will be standing on the sea of glass. Why didn't we ever see that over the years? I'm not sure exactly how it fits in yet, but it does appear that um, if we make it, we go to the sea of glass before the seven last plagues are poured out. And then on down through chapter 16, they are poured out. One of these plagues, I think, lasts as long as... Where, where is it? My eye doesn't fall on it. Last five months. I just wonder if the Feast of Trumpets occurs and God's people are resurrected and then they go to the Father's throne. There they have the marriage of the Lamb. There they are instructed and trained for a year in what their jobs will be. Christ obviously would want to get his life, wife lined out in what her responsibilities should be. And there is the principle in the Old Testament, and God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and Christ never changes. And that is that when a man, a young man, took a wife, he had a year off from war. He had a year off just to cheer up his wife. Now, if that principle is back there, would not Christ want to claim it for himself to spend a year in cheering up his wife. Meanwhile, down here on the earth, while we're being trained and positioned in those many mansions or houses or responsibilities that he tells us about in John, the seven last plagues will be raging over the earth and men being killed. And then when they are almost all killed, Christ comes back, his vesture dripped in blood, and all his saints with thee, Zechariah 14 says. And remember here again, 1 Thessalonians 4.17, we will ever be with him. So once we are with him, we stay there. So if he has us for a year up there, then we come down with him. He finishes conquering the earth, stands on the Mount of Olives, it cleaves in two, and the rivers come out, and the heavenly Jerusalem is established. We'll see that, I think, in Scripture. Let's see if I can back this up now that I've made this statement. But we always thought it would just be Feast of Trumpets, and we'd sort of do a U-turn. We'd go up and meet him in the clouds and come right back down. I think Revelation 15 is telling us something different than that. That we stand on the sea of glass as the seven last plagues occur. 
that seems fairly clear, doesn't it, just from that one verse. Now, how it all fits together uh, and, and how the book of Revelation revolves around that, I have not tried to study into closely as yet, but it, it's a question mark in my mind that maybe should bear a little further study. Here again, it is not a salvational issue. The key is if we're qualified to be changed whenever that first resurrection occurs. The key is the way we live. The key is our purpose in life. Uh, exactly how it happens, I don't really care. As long as when the first fruits start rising, I get to go with them. <laughs> I don't care what day or what month or what plague we're in when it happens. It's as long as I get to go up. So let's, you know, you might not agree with me on this because it does represent a little bit of a change from that which we have traditionally thought. But I think it's a change that can clearly be seen there. It's just that I don't know how to fully explain it or to give you the full time sequence there. We'll work on that one. But just to let you know that we may have a year up there with uh, our bridegroom and with the father getting introduced, getting interviews perhaps with him, and they'll tell us what our job is and, and uh, what responsibility exactly it will be. I would hate to go up in the air. Well, if, if that's the way he wants to do it, it's fine with me. But just standing here thinking about it, I wouldn't want to go up and meet him in the air, and we come back down, and he says, you go take care of such and such. And I'd say, how? <laughs> what? Me? That? But if we had a year up there to get things lined out and figured out, and he could explain our responsibility and how to go about it, and of course our minds would be good then, and we could remember Everything we're told. And we'd know the scripture word by word, memorized all the way through, just like that. And equipped that way then, maybe, maybe we'd be ready to come down and do our job. So, after the Feast of Trumpets, and however that actually works out, <coughs> comes the Feast of, of uh, Day of Atonement, which pictures Satan being taken completely out of the situation and us becoming at one with God and with him out of the way and Christ coming down very shortly thereafter, it opens up at one month with God for the whole world, for everybody that's left. No Satan around. All they have to fight is human nature, which is bad enough. But without Satan, it will be a much, much easier job for both them and us to get them at one with God, we already having become at one. Not only through the life we live here, but our change in a moment in a twinkling of an eye, and also possibly the year of instruction we have on the sea of glass. I can hardly wait if it happens that way. Because you've got all those angels singing hallelujah to God. You've got the 24 elders there bowing before God and singing holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty. And you've got that constant rainbow of glass underneath you. It just gives me chills to think about being there at that time with the Father and the Son. So as Bill said, this isn't selfish at all. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's selfish in the sense that I want to be there, but it's not just for us that we're there. It's for those people going through those seven last plagues down there. We can sit there and watch it on the walk over the edge of the throne, I suppose, if we want and watch. 
of what's going on down here, and we will have escaped it. We'll be out of it. But we'll be gearing ourselves up to get back down here and help straighten things out. So with Satan gone and the opportunity for the world to become at one with God opened up, then the Feast of Tabernacles arrives. And all those people who are left on the earth will have opportunity then to look to Jerusalem and to the holy Mount Zion with Jesus Christ there, and very likely the Father there as well. I'm not positive about that. Uh, they, nobody can go in who is unclean, but they'll be there. I think we can show that before we're done. Uh, where did I want to go now on, uh, on the Feast of Tabernacles? Oh, I know where I wanted to go. I wanted to go to Daniel. Let's go to Daniel. We're at that moment where Christ does return, the beginning of the Feast of Tabernacles, and let's see what the situation is. Uh, I want Daniel 7. Now he's talking about the kingdoms of this world here, uh, all the world-ruling empires that have occurred, and how they're going to be torn down. And I'm in chapter 7, now verse 9. I beheld till the thrones were cast down, till this earth was completely subjugated to Jesus Christ. That's the setting. And the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. If you want to know who this is, you can go to Revelation 1, and it describes him perfectly. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. It talks about his chariot there in Ezekiel 1 and 5, and I think once in Jeremiah as well. Uh, so this is the recently returned Christ. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered to him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened. I think what this is telling us is that when Christ returns and those plagues have finished, and he sits down on this earth to begin his thousand years of judgment, there are only 100 million people left. There are well over 6 billion people on earth today. And nearly all of them are going to be killed. Only 100 million. Now that, is, that still sounds like a lot of people, doesn't it? But that's only about a third of what's in the United States alone without counting the rest of the world, and the billions in India and China and Japan and here and there and everywhere around the earth. But that's the time setting, is when he comes back and he judges that many. Well, he's, I'm sure, going to judge everybody that's there. I don't think he's got a bunch, you know, billions hidden over here somewhere that he's not going to judge. And I think this ties in very well with Matthew 25 and perhaps gives us the time setting of this one, which has been a little bit confusing, I think, over the years to people. Um, Matthew 25, let's go down to about verse 32. Verse 31, When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, and as Zechariah 14 tells us, the saints with him as well, then shall he sit up on the throne of his glory. And before him shall be gathered all nations, all peoples, 
And he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Now the world and the Protestants tend to think that Christ is coming back, and he's just going to start sorting. Goat, goat, sheep, 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 goat, 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 sheep, goat, sheep, goat, goat, sheep, goat, sheep, sheep, and go through everybody on earth. But I think we have seen from many, many scriptures that judgment is a process. You and I are in the process of judgment now. Judgment has now come upon spiritual Israel. And our judgment isn't but a day, is it? Ours isn't Christ sitting up there looking at the church and saying, goat, sheep, goat, sheep, 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 goat, goat, goat. He's not doing that with us. He's giving us a lifetime to grow, to overcome, to be taught, to learn, to, to start out as a begotten little child of God, using that analogy, and then becoming a mature Christian. The first fruits in the early New Testament church were judged that way, weren't they? So that is the way God judges. And when he sits down on his throne before 100 million people who survived the, the, the last three and a half years of the Great Tribulation, the Great Tribulation has been for 6,000 years. Living under Satan's rule from the Garden of Eden on has been a great tribulation. There have been times when millions and millions of people have been slain, like the Jews in the Holocaust, like the Jews killing the Nazis after the Holocaust, like all the things that went on in the Middle Ages, where millions and millions of people have been slain in war. People have died of famine and starvation and persecution. This has been a great, long tribulation. The last three and a half years are only the most intense part at the very end of that great tribulation. I think Frank laid that out pretty well in an article. I don't have time to go through the whole subject here with all the scriptures, but if you question that, get the article that Frank Nelty wrote on it. Uh, I don't know what the title of that one is right offhand, but I think he pretty well shows that. Roy, do you have it? Oh, wow. Okay, you've got it. The Great Tribulation and the Great Multitude. I'll say it on the tape uh, because this goes other places as well. Um, that one bears studying, and I will touch on it some toward the end of this sermon as well. Now, we were in Matthew 25, verse 34. Then shall the king say to them on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So these people are going to be given a chance to learn the truth at the beginning of the millennium, just like us. We will be their teachers, and I think we can show from Isaiah 30, 20, 21, and uh, that we will be kings and priests on the earth there in Revelation 5, 10, that we will be here judging the peoples. Which peoples? The ones that were left when the end of the Great Tribulation occurred. So it's not that he's going to come back. We know already that the first fruits are only 144,000, because it says in Revelation 14:4, speaking of the 144,000, these are the first fruits. So it isn't us he's judging. We're changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. You know, we don't even have to face judgment of the kind that the world is talking about when they use Matthew 25. When Christ returns with a shout... We will either rise from the air and meet him, or from the ground and meet him in the air, or we will come up out of our graves and meet him in the air. 
And you will either be spirit in a moment of twinkling of eye, or you won't. There will be no judgment of us being pictured as sheep and goats here in Matthew 25. Our judgment will have already come. When I said we miss the judgment, that can be misinterpreted very easily. Today is our day of judgment. Right now, as we sit here, God is separating us as sheep or goats. Many have been called. Few are now being chosen. When you're chosen, you're a sheep. When you're not chosen, you're a goat in this particular analogy. That ought to give you the willies. I mean, I know we know that, but we need to be reminded of that. But now is a day of salvation, and it's our day of salvation. We might have an interview before the Father and the Son once we get on that sea of glass, but he's not going to tell us to go to hell at that point, is he? I use the Protestant vernacular. The grave, the fire. <laughs> oh, no, we will, we'll already be spirit then. Then it's just a matter of telling us why I'm in the bottom chair and you're up in a different chair. Telling us what our job is. I don't know that, there, that there'll even be uh, higher and lower chairs in that sense. I mean, if you're part of that 144,000, you're part of the wall in the New Jerusalem, and who cares that David is king over Israel or what Moses or Abraham is doing? I'll be interested in doing my job because I'll just be tickled pink to be there. And, well, tickled pink. I'll be washed white to be there. So then, that separating of sheep and goats begins at the beginning of the millennium and lasts for a thousand years. At the end of that time, Revelation 20 tells us that Satan will be loosed for a little season, and there will be a great rebellion. Satan's influence is simply incredible. The people could have lived under the righteous rule of Jesus Christ and see the great city and his bride here on this earth and be given righteous judgment and peace and happiness for a thousand years. Satan is turned loose for a little season. I don't know how long that is, but a short while. And he turns perhaps millions and millions, I don't know, maybe even, maybe even billions of people against God just like that. And they come in a great rebellion against Jesus Christ and us. Now, let's go to Ezekiel 37. You could predict this sometime today. Sometimes it's hard in these scriptures to determine what is actually millennial and what is great white throne judgment because the conditions are very much the same. But this idea of the judgment is a matter of a process of elimination to some degree. Here we have in chapter 37 of Ezekiel, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and carried me out in the Spirit of the Lord, and set me down in the midst of the valley, which was full of bones. 
and caused me to pass by them round about, and behold, there were very many in the open valley, and lo, they were very dry. They'd been dead long time, in other words. They hadn't just been killed in the seven last plagues and still had sinews and bones and, I mean, and, uh, and blood and, and some flesh on them. But these were very dry bones, indicating they'd been dead for a long, long time. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And Ezekiel shook his head and said, You know. <laughs> it doesn't look like it to me, Lord. It's kind of what he's implying here. It doesn't look like it to me, but uh, whatever you say. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will bring up flesh upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Now this is a physical resurrection, it appears to me. Sinews, flesh, skin. Now, when we're changed in 1 Corinthians 15, 50, and 51, right through there in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, and 17, it says, in a moment in a twinkling of eye will be changed from flesh to spirit. The corruptible will put on the incorruptible. Now, this is still corruptible, if there's flesh there. So this is talking about a time of a great resurrection to flesh. Now, let's consider the possibilities. When Christ comes back, his saints will have already been resurrected and changed into spirit, those who are dead in Christ. That is, anyone from, let's say, Enoch or whenever God started to count, down through David's time, through the New Testament times, the Middle Ages, through today, and through to the end of the day of the Lord, when the 144,000 count is made absolutely complete. Those will have already been changed, so they're taken care of, first resurrection. Now you have those who are left on the earth at the beginning of the millennium, who are still alive. And they've not yet had a chance at salvation because they've never known the truth like you and I have known the truth. They may have died when they were a minute old. I don't know whether God will resurrect all those aborted babies who never drew the breath of life or not. He may very well. Otherwise, it would have never been murder. Don't know for sure where he's going to draw the line. Mr. Armstrong used to say that uh, it had to do with when they drew the first breath of life. And that made a certain amount of sense, but that was before they started doing abortions by the tens of millions. And he really climbed on that and said, that's murder. Well, if they weren't a people, a people in quotes, <laughs> they, they were a babe, were they yet a human, if they weren't yet alive as a human and counted, then why would it be murder? Because the world says, well, it's just stuff. But any of you who have felt a baby kick in the mother's womb as a proud papa or mama did not think of it as stuff in there that could be sucked out with a vacuum cleaner. You thought of it as a baby. So I don't know. That's a, perhaps a theological question that may not be answered until Christ comes back and we find out. It's not a salvational issue. But I think murdering them could very well be a salvational issue. But all those people will be dead. The only ones then that Christ can judge will those who are yet alive when the end of that great tribulation occurs and he will sit down 
and he's going to perhaps, it sounds like, restrict it to 100 million who will be alive at that time, the rest dead. They will have their chance then. Any children they have during the millennium, and I think that they will repopulate the earth, rebuild the earth, that's the whole idea, you see. You, you have an earth that cannot support the number of inhabitants it has today. They will be thinned out greatly, and the earth then will be healed, and pol the pollutions will be gone. Uh, the continents will probably come back together, and no more deserts. They'll bloom as the roads. I think they will come together because they were probably divided in the days of Peleg. I think that's Genesis, what, 8? Somewhere right in there. And the rivers are going to come out from the throne of Christ in the four directions. And they're there to heal the nations, heal the land. Well, if the continents are still divided, how are the rivers going to get there to heal it? So my feeling, and I might be wrong here, is that God is going to bring all the continents back together. He's going to place the peoples where he wants on them, and those rivers are going to heal the entire land. There will only be a few salty and marshy places left. There will be no more sea. Well, why? Because the salt will be removed, and it will all be fresh water. It doesn't say there will be no more water. It says there will be no more sea. That which man cannot drink or use with a few salty places. I think it's Ezekiel 48 or 47 or 48 says. And perhaps that's also symbolic not only of just the land itself being healed, but most everyone on the earth will ultimately worship the king, the Lord of hosts, even the Egyptian when he gets no rain. But there may be a few little marshy, miry areas where people do not bend their knee to Christ whether that will survive throughout the millennium is another question. But those waters go out to heal from under that throne there in Revelation 21.1. So the earth is going to be healed during that time, probably repopulated, and it would very easily hold the six billion it has today if all these wastelands were turned into useful land. And anywhere you go on this earth today, you see wasteland buku. Huge, monstrous deserts, rainforests, mountains that are so steep no one can use them. There, there's so many land, very little of the earth is arable today. And maybe even if he moves the continents back together, uh, some that is underground or under the sea will come up. And maybe there will be even more land than there is today. I don't know, just speculating here. But I suspect by the end of the millennium, we will have a tremendous population of people on the earth. Of his kingdom and its increase shall never be an end. Now those people will have built homes and vineyards over that thousand years, and they will have their judgment completed by the end of the millennium, so that then they are either changed or candidates for the lake of fire. Those that rebel with Satan when Satan is turned loose at the end of the millennium, may go into the lake of fire. All right, you've got the first fruits taken care of when Christ returns. You've got those who were left living on the earth taken care of and have, having had an opportunity at salvation during the millennium. You only really have one category of people left who have not had an opportunity at salvation, and that's these people in the valley of the dry bones. Well, probably plus Gentiles. Every man will have his opportunity. 
but it does tell us who these bones are. Let's continue. I got a little sidetracked there. Verse 7, so I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a noise, and a behold, and a shaking of the rattle of the bones, as the song goes. And when I beheld, lo, the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and the skin covered them above, but there was no breath in them. So the bones, I, I, I want to be there to see this. Wouldn't this be neat? You see all these billions of bones laying around. They estimate that there have been 60 billion people already who have lived on the face of the earth. Sixty billion. And they would all come up at one time, faster than microwave popcorn. I mean, popping out all over the place. Not just the graveyards. It would be enough just to be standing by a big, you know, by Arlington Cemetery and watch it. But they'll be coming up out of the depths of the ocean They'll be coming from places where you would have never suspected that dead people could ever have been buried. Better watch where you stand. What an amazing thing to watch. But you see, the earth will have already been healed. It will have already been restored. Houses will be built, and vineyards will be there, and fig trees will be there, and wheat crops and barley crops will be there. So when all these 60 billion, how many ever there really are, come up out of the graves, and out of the ground, and out of the sea, and out of the shark bellies, and wherever they are. You know, <laughs> yesterday I was shark poop, today I'm a human being. <laughs> you think about it. You know, that shark may have deposited you for several miles along the ocean floor. And here you come up. And at first, they, he sees them, and, and they just start going from bone to flesh and sinews and skin, and still no breath. They're just mummies laying there. Then said he to me, verse 9, Prophesy to the wind, prophesy, son of man, and say to the wind, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood upon their feet, an exceeding great army. Can you imagine Ezekiel seeing this in dream or in vision or an angel telling him this, and he sees this in his mind's eye? That must have blown his head. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried, our hope is lost, we are cut off for our parts. Part of me there, part of me here. Remember what I said? Pieces and parts like the McDonald's commercial. They're all over the place. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up out of your graves, and shall put my spirit in you, and you shall live, and I shall place you in your own land. Then shall you know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Eternal. He's bound by this. He's bound by his word. Not only has he spoken it through Ezekiel, but he's going to do it. It's going to happen. And then he goes on through and shows the two sticks and so on and how Judah and Israel will be combined and never more separated. They were separated because of sin in the days of Jeroboam and Rehoboam. 
and have never been together since. In fact, Judah <laughs> doesn't even know who the rest of Israel is, and Israel doesn't know who they are. When I was in Israel, I talked to quite a few Israelis and told them, well, we're your brothers, you know. Uh, we're, we're Ephraim and Manasseh and Gad and Asher, and you're just one tribe, the Jews. And they looked at me like, huh? <laughs> we are the chosen people, they think. They're so separated, they don't even know who we are, and we don't even know who we are, for the most part, except for a few called out, selected ones who've been given the truth. So this apparently pictures a time when all those who died, whether they were fetuses or babies or old people, who never understood the truth of God and never had the new covenant offered to them, will be resurrected, offered the new covenant, the Spirit of God, and they will then live for a period of, we think, 100 years. No more an infant of days or a sucking child and so on. Let's go to Isaiah 65 and read that. I say, we think, because I asked an evangelist one time, well, how do we know that Isaiah 65 is talking about the great white throne judgment? And he said, that's where you talk fast and loud. If you get the picture. <laughs> Proof week, holler. Because it is very difficult to tell in here where there's a separation between millennial and great white throne judgment time. In fact, didn't it talk about a great white throne there in, or did it? Does Daniel say that? I, that stuck in my mind, but my mind sometimes has things stick in it that aren't too good. Daniel 7, let me go back there a minute. It doesn't mention the great white throne there. We call it the great white throne judgment based on Revelation 20. Uh, but here in Isaiah 65, we start in verse 17 traditionally. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come into mind. But be you glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem a rejoicing, and her people a joy. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. And the voice of weeping shall be no more heard in her nor the voice of crying, there shall be no more thence an infant of days, nor an old man that has not filled his days. For the child shall die an hundred years old, but the sinner being an hundred years old shall be accursed, and they shall build houses and inhabit them, and so on. And we've said that the great white throne judgment at the end of the millennium, pictured by the eighth day today, would be a hundred years. Um, Apparently, the baby's cut off, no more an infant of days. I don't mean cut off as an aborted. I mean, you quit having babies. I mean, if, you're go if, if the plan for this physical earth is going to stop somewhere, you've got to stop babies. Because if you don't stop babies, <laughs> uh, the thing just keeps rolling on because they have to be judged at a time. So I would think that in the great white throne judgment, certainly there will be no more an infant of days. On the other hand, you go down to verse 23, and it says, They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth for trouble, for they are the seed of the blessed of the eternal and their offspring with them. So this makes me scratch my head. Uh, I've never heard anybody read verse 23 when they gave a great white throne, uh, eighth day of the feast, last great day sermon. Because it seems to contradict verse 20, which is our pet scripture to show that the great white throne judgment is exactly 100 years long. So to me, this has always been somewhat of a question. 
I don't think that it's a question that we do have the great white throne judgment and that everyone who has not had an opportunity will be raised as per Ezekiel 37 because it seems clear that you have to resurrect each in his order until all have been resurrected and given an opportunity at salvation. That is what we've always understood. And once that is accomplished, see, now you've got it all done. The first fruits when Christ returns, those who were left alive during, uh, at his return, and those children they might have had during the millennium, will all have their judgment finished by the end of the millennium and the short season in which Satan is loosed. Then you have a time of a resurrection of all this house of Israel. That doesn't happen when Christ returns, or he would have 60 billion plus 100 million to judge, see? So that waits. And not only that, but Revelation 20 tells us very clearly, the rest of the dead lives not till the thousand years were finished. So we know that that general resurrection, apparently of Ezekiel 37, can't happen until the end of the thousand years. So I think Mr. Armstrong's assessment was certainly correct, and that's the way we've always taught it. And that does make the great white throne judgment. The only question I'm raising here is, is it exactly 100 years? That I don't know. But I do know that based on the pattern of everything else, us having our day of judgment now, and that day off being about 60, 70, 80, 90 years, or however long you're in the church, because when you're converted is when your judgment begins. So it could be anywhere from three days to 50, 60, 70, 80 years, depending on the length of life. So you have that period of time in which we're judged. In the millennium, people also have a time period in which they're judged. It's just that he begins sorting. It's just that that, that sorting of Matthew 25 takes a long time then these people who come up at the end of the thousand years, when it's finished, apparently the whole house of Israel, remember they were dry bones that had been there a long time, from Adam on down, are raised. Do they get a hundred years? Seems like a reasonable number. And maybe Isaiah 65 is that description. But based on the context, I'm not altogether sure of that. But here again, it is a speculative, not a salvation issue. So don't get bent out of shape about it one way or another. It's just that I've always had trouble making a strong connection here. And when I ask evangelists who should have known when I was in college or a few years into the ministry out of college, they said, talk loud and fast. (laughs) That was the best answer I could ever get, okay? So now you know all the trade secrets. But I'd rather face it square on and say, Proof a little weak here. Uh, Let's wait and see. Don't know for sure. Now, let's add a little more to this. Let's go to Romans 10 or 11, whichever it is. Romans 10, at least in that section, probably 11, I think, is what I want. Um... I won't find it in Corinthians. I know that. All right. Chapter 11, verse 26 would be a good place. And so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the Deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. Now all Israel is not being saved now. All Israel is about to go into a great end of the tribulation and be killed. But they will come up 
when that thousand years is finished and have an opportunity at salvation. So all Israel, that is not every individual, for there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, but most all, the great majority of Israel is going to be saved. I know a man who's made his almost his entire religion out of trying to prove that most of Israel is going to be lost. He's reading some of the scriptures back there, in, let's say, Ezekiel 5. I don't know where all he's getting it, but that uh, Israel will be killed, you know, and then a few put in the, the apron, and then a few more hairs taken out, and that type of thing. And he thinks most Israel will be lost. I ask you a question. Do you worship a loser for a God? God will be a resounding success in all he sets his hand to do. He's not saving Israel now, but when that thousand years is finished and the whole house of Israel who's never had an opportunity at spiritual understanding and the, the, the new covenant will be offered that new covenant and most of them he will bring through it and save them. Paul says it here. I don't know how you could ever get around this scripture. All Israel shall be saved. Now what does that mean? Does that mean most of Israel is not going to make it? You know, do words mean anything or do they not? Verse 32 answers the problem. For God has concluded them all in unbelief that he might have mercy upon all. He has written the Bible here a little, there a little, Isaiah 28, line upon line, precept upon precept, so that they might be taken and snared and deceived, because if you've been deceived, he can't pronounce judgment on you. And that's what Christ did in his parables. <laughs> How is it the Protestants teach us that he spoke in parables to make the understanding plain for us? When he said, I speak in parables so they cannot understand. How do they ignore that? Well, I guess like they ignore the rest of the Bible, mostly. But it sounds sweet, I guess, that, that our sweet Lord uh, would do it that way. But he himself plainly says he doesn't do it that way. I believe him, not them. So I believe that Paul is talking here about that time that we read about in Ezekiel 37. Uh, let's go to Matthew 23 just a moment. He talks to the Jews... Specifically, the uh, scribes and Pharisees here, and we won't go through it because he reviles them and calls them lots of names, uh, like snakes and vipers and uh, whitened sepulchers, inside you're full of dead men's bones and so on. But you come down here to the end of it, and he's speaking to them as the representatives and leaders of Israel. Verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you that kill the prophets and stone them which are sent to you, how often would I have gathered your children together, even as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings, and you would not. We've heard a lot about persecution here this morning. Uh, some very excellent words from the sermon and sermonette. And uh, they've always stoned the prophets. Anytime. Anyone stands up and starts talking about the dire consequences God is going to visit upon his people, they get stoned. People simply don't want to hear it. And here was Jesus Christ himself 
that they were trying to stone. How often would I have gathered you together, even as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. He's speaking directly to the scribes and Pharisees, Jewry here, Judaism here. Later Paul said, beware the concision. For I say to you, you shall not see me henceforth till you shall say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Now who comes in the name of the Lord? He introduces that in the very next chapter where he sits down and talks to his disciples. He conferred the authority on them. Hebrews makes it very clear that there was a change in the priesthood and now the ministry of the New Testament under Jesus Christ has all authority under him and that the Jews have none. Their house is left desolate and he will no longer recognize or have anything to do with them until they call the New Testament ministry blessed. Does anyone have a publication of the Jews who calls the New Testament ministry of the New Covenant under Jesus Christ blessed? I'd love to see it if you've got it. There ain't no such animal. Those people are consigned to the Valley of Dry Bones. Those that he spoke to individually and all those who have followed them down through the ages because they still have yet to do that. You know when they're going to do that? When they come up with moss in their ears and spiders under their nose. And they see the twelve apostles reigning over the twelve tribes of Israel. Then they'll call them blessed. Then Christ will have something to do with them and they will be saved. Then and not until then. Let's see it in John 7. John 7. And I think I want down about... This is... Uh, he, Christ was speaking here on the, the last great day of the feast. Verse 37. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried. He cried. He didn't just say this, but he shouted. He spoke with a loud voice. He cried aloud and spared not, in other words, saying, If any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. He that believes on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water, a type of the living water that flows from his throne during the millennium and great white throne judgment. Now he's saying here that salvation is open to any man. That's what he says, if any man. Now, John 6.44 says that no man can come except the Spirit of the Father draw him, and that he has limited those to whom he is allowing that today. The new covenant has only been offered to a very, very few people, you and I included. The old covenant is drawing moths and is becoming obsolete and is fading away. It isn't completely gone because he has not brought the judgment of that covenant down upon his people Israel. But even as it is fading away, Paul says, a new has been offered to the New Testament church, wherein, wherein he would put his spirit in us. It's the same covenant that will be offered to those people at the beginning of the millennium and at the beginning of the great white throne judgment. 
But right now he is about to destroy the nations of Israel. And that is under the terms of the Old Covenant. They did not keep his commandments. They do not today as a nation keep his commandments. And he can legally punish them under the terms of that covenant. And at that time, when that destruction is complete and he comes back with a shout, the Old Covenant will no, never more be offered. The punishment will have come under its terms. Those people will mostly have died, and they'll come up in the Valley of Dry Bones and be offered the new, just as you and I are offered the new now. So salvation is offered once to everyone. The new covenant offered to all men at some point in time, whether now with us, during the millennium, or during the white, great, great, white throne judgment, and then it's all over. Finished. Done. What time of the day are we getting to be? Get carried away here. So, when Christ spoke on the last great day, he made it obvious the salvation at that point, when the Valley of Dry Bones occurs, will be offered to any man. Not just a select few that he's offering the New Covenant to now, but to any and every one. So that gives us part, gives us an insight from Christ's own words as to the, the typology that we should attach to the Great White Throne Judgment or the last great day that we're keeping today. That wasn't even, it wasn't even breathed of in, in Leviticus 23 or in the Old Testament except in the prophecies for the end time of Isaiah and Ezekiel and so on. But back when the law was given, the Pentateuch, uh, all it said was offer bullocks and lambs and rams and goats and so on, and it doesn't tell you what it means, which is why Herbert Armstrong saw the apostles were keeping the holy days in the New Testament, and Christ was speaking on the last great day. So he says, well, we must keep those. So he goes back to Leviticus 23, says there they are, and he started keeping them. But he had no clue as to why. And over a period of seven years, he began to understand the plan of salvation and put this symbology together, something you and I would have never done. Uh, <laughs> and no one else does. Is, there may be a few people here and there to whom God has opened this, little pockets of people somewhere on earth. But as far as organized religion is concerned, I don't know of anyone that understands this. Do any of you? Of what these are about and what the judgment is all about? We're a very special, purchased, uh, enlightened people. Incredible, isn't it? All right, now, we've already been to Isaiah 65 and raised some question marks. Let's go to Revelation 20, and we'll begin wrapping this up fairly soon here, unless I get carried off in Revelation 21. Uh, let's go to Revelation 20. We referred to this several times. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. So uh, just before the Feast of Tabernacles starts, pictured by the Day of Atonement, he's bound a thousand years. And cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till a thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that... At the end of, after the thousand years, the earth has to have a full Sabbath. It won't be the last ten years of the millennium. When God gives you something, he gives it full measure. 
I think some have thought that, well, maybe it would be the last year or two or three or five years of the millennium. Oh, no, no. The Sabbath is not complete till the sun goes down. The millennium does not end until God has allocated a full Sabbath of rest, as Hebrews 4 points out, a thousand-year rest. So it is after that that he must be loosed a little season. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his, his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. And we reign as kings and priests, as Revelation 5.10 tells us, a thousand years. <laughs> but the rest of the dead lived not again till a thousand years were done, finished. This is the first resurrection. So we're in the first resurrection, and the second resurrection does not occur until the thousand years are finished. Then you have the second resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that has part in the first resurrection. On such the second death has no power. So they're changed in a moment, a twinkling of an eye, so it makes it very clear here those who are in the first resurrection are spirit beings. They shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city. The city is there, by the way, when they come out. It's not a long time after, not after the great white throne judgment. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet were, and shall be tormented day and night forever. Apparently he doesn't die. Although some are preaching that today. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was no place, found no place for them. Um, people say it gets a little muddy in here, trying to determine which is which, but... The great white throne judgment appears. See, Satan is loose for a little while, deceives those people who were left at the end of the millennium. He's cast into the fire. Don't need him around anymore. He's not going to be loosed anymore. Then you have a great white throne resurrection. I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. In other words, mankind, whether he was a peasant or a king, small and great. And the books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books the Bible, the scriptures, according to their works. So he's apparently going to give them a period of time that they can produce works, because if they had been born and died two days later, they had no works. So the whole house of Israel included people who died with gray beards and people who, by, who uh, died with wet deities. And they haven't had a chance. So here again, it seems like it's quick, but it may be that 100-year period, or if Isaiah 65 is indeed talking in some fashion of the millennium, it, it still has to be a period of time for those people to grow up or to be uh, offered the truth and have a chance to follow it or not. Uh, Matthew 25 seems to be left, right, left, right, too, when you read it. But when you understand the process of judgment, you understand that he's talking about a process of time. And at the end of that time, of course, death, of course, death and the grave were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. So when that judgment is finished, that's all. 
Every human being who's ever lived has had an opportunity at salvation and has either succeeded and all Israel will, perhaps not all of Gog and Magog will, but all Israel will be saved except for perhaps a few. And, uh, well, I don't know, it says all. Maybe all Israel will. I don't know just how God will be in this. There's nothing in the Bible that says any one individual was ever lost eternally. Solomon and Judas have been put forth as candidates, but there's nothing in there that says they have lost it. They lost this life, and it sounds like they were on very thin ice, and maybe Esau as well. But there is nothing that says in so many words, these have lost eternity. I don't think you can find that. I think, though, that there will be some Israelites who don't make it. It's just that the vast majority will. Because there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, I guess there's one thing I could cover here before we wrap this up. I have a few minutes. It said, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. Uh, <coughs> this sounds like after it's all over, doesn't it? When you When you... Look at it going from chapter 20 to chapter 21. But remember that much of the book of Revelation is in set chapters, and there are many, many flashbacks in the book of Revelation. It is not a book that goes sequentially from chapter 1 through chapter 22. Uh, it, it tells a story. It goes back and picks a story up again. Uh, it has insets. Uh, that, so the timeline becomes very, very confusing, and we have to use context to show the timeline. I think, well, I think, I know God wrote it that way on purpose so that the book of Revelation would be an enigma and we wouldn't know exactly how all this comes together so that they might be taken and snared and deceived. But let's notice some things about this. And I did cover it in those last, um, I guess the last sermon or two or three of the How Exclusive is the Church series. And I, I went into a lot of scriptures there, so I don't want to go back and belabor that. If you have a question about it, you can go back and listen to that series. And I think it was, it was fairly, made fairly clear there. And uh, uh, he tells me back there I'm ten minutes from the end of the tape. <laughs> oh, tape time. Oh, tape nine. I'm glad we have competent people. Just, just know. I don't know when I said what I said. I don't even remember what I said a lot of times. You're like that sermon three weeks ago. Oh, I'm glad. wonder what it was about. <laughs> but it's exciting, you know. As my dad said, I'm like a goose. I wake up in a new world every morning. Anyway, where were we here? And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So the analogy is made immediately that the bride in the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, are the same thing. Let's skip on down a little bit. Verse 9, there came to me one of the seven angels which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues and talked with me saying, come here. I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. Now, this ties in with what we read in chapter 15. I hadn't really made this connection before, but here's one of the angels that's about to pour out the seven last plagues. Or he had one of the vials. Maybe he's already poured them out. But he says, I'm going to show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. 
Now, what we are about to read about is the bride, the lamb's wife. Okay? And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem. We just heard about it from Jeannie. The new Jerusalem, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Now, why did he tie in the angel with the vial of the seven last plagues if this is going to be 1,100 years later? Does that make sense? And the bride is going to be where? He's coming and all his saints with thee, Zechariah 14, 8. And she will ever be with him, 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. Once they're married, they will never, ever again part. No overnight business trips out of town, honey. Thank you. So if this new Jerusalem is coming and he's going to be reigning on earth, he's with his bride. Having the glory of God and her light was likened to a stone most precious. Then he begins to describe her, the twelve gates, the twelve apostles, the wall exactly 144,000 cubits high, and there are 144,000 in the bride. These are the first fruits, Revelation 14.4. And then he describes this. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, verse 24. And the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor to it. There's still kings on the earth. They haven't all been made spirit yet or been cast into the lake of fire. The kings of the earth bring their glory to it. And I'll show you in a little while that they're human, not just spirit kings here. Verse 22, and he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. And there were these 12, uh, the tree of life, and they bear 12 fruits every month of the year, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So this new Jerusalem is here, and the waters are going out from the throne, and the nations are still in need of healing when this occurs. After the great white throne judgment, that healing will have already occurred. People have lived for 1,100 years, more or less, on the earth at that time. Now, people say, well, yeah, but the earth is all going to be burned up. I beg to differ. That came from a sermon by GTA back in the 60s called Behold, I Make All Things New, in which he said the earth and the heavens and everything is going to be completely burned and nothing left, and then he's going to create all things new. But he was leaving out some things. I think he used 2 Peter, and let's go there quickly. We have time to, to show you this one point. 2 Peter 3. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Now is he saying here that the earth will become nothing but a cinder cone, that nothing is left? Sounds like it, doesn't it? I'll give him that. But it sounds like that's exactly what will happen when Christ returns. Well, we're talking about the day of the Lord here, at the end of the Great Tribulation. All right, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. Now that sounds like the final chapter, doesn't it? Dissolved. 
what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conduct and godliness. All speculation aside, this again is the bottom line. Godliness and holiness. The things that do count for salvation. Looking for and hasting to the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwells righteousness. Now, it does sound like, reading this, that it's all going to be burned up, and then we'll have a new heaven and a new earth. And his timing, he said, was at the end of the great white throne judgment that this would occur. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent so that you may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. That's the point Peter's making. It's the point we should get above everything, is that we should be holy and blameless so that we can be part of it, however it turns out to be, because this, to some degree, is speculative. But now, he didn't take it one step further. And I think that is the step that gives a lie to that whole theory. Let's go back to Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65, because that is exact. What Peter is quoting here is Isaiah 65 and 66. Where did Peter get that, that, uh, that language? Isaiah 65, verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come into mind. Here he's talking about what? The new heavens and the new earth. Now what follows that? It's talking about death down in verse 20. The sinner dying a hundred years old. It's talking about offspring. It's talking about human beings still being on the earth after the new heavens and the new earth are here. Okay? Now let's go to Isaiah 66, verse 22. For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, says the Eternal, so shall your seed and your name remain. And it shall come to pass. We're talking about the new heavens and the new earth, right? It shall come to pass that from, from one new moon to another and from, from one Sabbath to another shall all spirit kings, shall all flesh come to worship before me, says the Lord. And they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me. For their worms shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorring unto all flesh. So the sense I'm getting from this is that Christ is going to shake the heavens and the earth, as he says at the end of Haggai and in many, many other scriptures. He uses very strong imagery to show that the heavens and the earth will be dissolved. In other words, all that which is old is going to go away. It doesn't mean the earth's going to disappear or God's universe that he created and said this is good is going to disappear. It simply means that there's going to be a restitution of all things, Acts 3, 19 through 21. The pivotal verse in the whole Bible, Herbert Armstrong said. So the new heavens and new earth will be here, and so will flesh. When Christ comes back with his bride, and he says his bride is the new Jerusalem. And if his bride is the new Jerusalem, and he's going to reign on earth, and his bride is going to be with him, then the new Jerusalem is here. Or is my logic all screwed up? So I think that our traditional view of this was a little off. 
that our opportunity to be in that new Jerusalem comes a little sooner than we thought. You know, what's 1,100 years, give or take a little, but hey, sooner the better as far as I'm concerned. And if we are that new Jerusalem, we're going to be reigning right here on the earth and all the kings of the world are going to come and all the waters, see when he comes down on the Mount of Olives and it splits in two and his saints are with him, when that occurs, those healing waters start going out then. That's when the earth needs healed. That's when the new Jerusalem is here and those waters go out, they heal the earth, and then the, the people start coming there. It says no defiled or filthy there in Revelation 21 will ever come in because Christ is there and his bride is there and they don't want the filthy shoes of the Gentiles and Israelites who have not yet repented there. But those people are still out there and all flesh will come before him to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So I believe that it's fairly clear that the new heavens and the new earth will be here at the beginning of the millennium when the earth is cleansed. Now, I don't have time to go into all the scriptures I used in that, in that sermon, so get number nine of, the, uh, of that series, How Exclusive is the Church, if you want to research that a little more. And then if you still have questions, uh, ask me about it, and I'll say, I wonder what I said. Let's go back and listen to the tape and get the scriptures again, because there's a lot more to back it up than that. Well, we're down to time to quit. Boy, right on. And uh, we've gone through the whole plan of salvation. So I, I hope that you find that profitable, and I hope it didn't blow anyone away with these new ideas, but I think they can be backed up to show. And it doesn't really change the plan of salvation. It's still everyone in the same order that Mr. Armstrong understood. It's just a matter of understanding what the New Jerusalem is and when it is, and then the question mark about how long the Great White Throne Judgment is. So those two, two things are not salvational, so they shouldn't bother us too much, but something to speculate about and think about and, and look at as you study further.